You're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast. Now here's your host, Chris McPherson. Hello, Eagles fans, and welcome to another edition of the Eagles Insider Podcast. I'm joined by the one who apparently brings sex appeal to this show. <laughs> That's where we're starting this podcast. Alex huh? Smith, indeed. That's what happens when you go big time. You've got fans. I guess I do. I guess I have some fans out there. You get some love on social media. Yeah, apparently so. As we prepare for Saturday's third preseason contest against the Indianapolis Colts, the dress rehearsal, so to speak, for the regular season. So we've been having a lot of fun with these podcasts. Mm -hmm. And a special thanks to our producers, Brian Thomas and Ricky Shu, making everything happen behind the scenes. And to the players as well, if you haven't had a chance to listen, we've had Brandon Brooks, Trey Burton, Big V. Do you want to pronounce the name? Halapula Vadi Vaitai. Very nicely done. And last week, Jason Kelsey. Lots and lots of great insight. We learned a lot about the players' backgrounds, as well as we learn about who they are from people who helped them get to where they are today, whether it's parents, mentors, teachers, what have you, former coaches. But this week, we have a chance to catch up with one of the truly special people who I've ever covered in my time here with the Eagles. And I've been full-time here since 2004. And that's long snapper, John Dornboss. He was really outstanding, as, as you'll hear in our interview coming up. A guy who just comes off as genuine as can be. I remember when I first started here in 2013, I'd seen him on TV and, and things like that before. Obviously, I knew who he was, but just getting to know him, he, he's so friendly. He's so personable to everyone. Everyone in the locker room kind of gravitates towards him. He just has that kind of personality. And from learning about what he's had to go through and where he's come from, you might never expect that that's something that he's had to deal with. But as you'll hear in this interview, the way that he's gotten through everything is, is really incredible. Now, Dornbos has been a fixture in Philadelphia, but he's made it to the national stage thanks to America's Got Talent. We recorded this interview a few weeks ago. We wanted to save it for this week in particular because his next appearance on AGT is this upcoming Tuesday, August 30th. So make sure that that evening or first thing Wednesday morning, you're casting all of your votes and you can vote online. You can vote through social media. You can call in your vote still. Everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast, make sure you cast as many votes as possible so that John advances. And we also appreciate any feedback you want to give us for the podcast, whether you listen to iTunes, Stitcher, or PhiladelphiaEagles.com. In this interview, we're going to go in depth with John about America's Got Talent and the role that Magic had in his life after his mother was killed by his father. And then we will welcome a truly inspirational woman, John's aunt slash mom, Susan Hyman, who took over and raised John and his sister, Christy, after the tragic episode. So let's send it now to our interview with long snapper John Dornboss. And we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, one of the most famous people in the entire country, none other than long snapper John Dornboss. So everyone's asking about America's Got Talents. How did it come about? A friend of mine called me, and there's been people over the years that said, hey, you should do it, you should do it. And for whatever reason, I was like, nah, it's cool. And I just never did it. And then a friend of mine called me and said, hey, look, I kind of helped do choreography for some of the acts and stuff. Like, you should really do this. And I said, look, with my scheduling and stuff, I don't know if I can make this work. And he's like, well, let's see what the show will do. And let's see if we can accommodate your schedule. And if so, are you interested? And I was like, okay, let's try this out. So they were cool with my schedule and, and we worked it out. And so I did a performance and ultimately I, I thought I was going to end up having to opt out. But with that, a lot was filmed in the off season. So around March and I thought, I don't really know what direction the team's going to go. I don't know if I'll be here. The NFL stands for not for long as far as players are concerned. And had the team released me or gone a different direction, this was an opportunity. So I'll make the decision which way to go when the time comes. And so I kind of proceeded with both. 
And sure enough, we get to this point and the organization has been unbelievable. And, and Howie Roseman and Coach Peterson and Jeff Lurie and, and everybody has jumped on board and said, dude, you got to do this. And so I'm now faced with the situation of wow, I get to play in the NFL and I get to compete with the support of the greatest sports franchise in the world. So awesome, super lucky and excited. What did it mean to you when you saw pictures or heard from teammates that Coach Peterson was playing the trick during the team meeting? It's a really cool feeling and it's indescribable. And the reason is one of the greatest compliments you can get when your career's over is that everybody that you work with looks at you and says, or when they talk about you, they say, you know what, that guy was a true pro. And that means that you show up every day, hurt, sick, or injured, you do your job. You do what's asked of you. And that was one of those moments where we all give so much time. And sometimes, yeah, you do it for yourself, but really you're doing it for your teammates because you want your teammates to respect you and you want your teammates to trust on you in crunch time. And there's no better feeling than coming through in a clutch situation for your teammates and for all of them to look at you and just nod their head like, all right, dude, nice job. Like you trained for this, you executed, you got it done. And so all of a sudden to have the entire organization and my teammates and the coach watching that without me there and supporting me was really cool. I mean, it was all of them jumping on the bandwagon and say, look, dude, we support you. We love you. We wish you the best. So it was kind of an emotional moment. I thought it was really cool and class act. John, you've pulled off some amazing tricks on the show already. I think one of your most amazing tricks was getting back here for practice the next day <laughs> after a live show. How'd you pull that one off? It was a long, long, long car ride. So it's about 2,500 miles. Originally, I thought it was in New York because the years uh, prior it had been in New York and I didn't really associate that really? with Howard Stern. So to accommodate Howard Stern's schedule, they would film uh, right. in New gotcha. York. Gotcha, okay. He's not a judge this year, so now most of those guys in Simon, I think, are West Coast based. So when I found out it was in LA, I'm like, oh, well, there's definitely probably not going to make this work, you know, but we'll wait and see. So yeah, so the show films at five o'clock, so it airs live on the East Coast at eight. Correct. So the show's done by six. And so I can hop a nine o'clock flight and I just take a direct and land and it was good. Do you get nervous before performing? You got the jitters. You hope everything goes right. But for me, there's something about just the excitement of being in a theater. There's something about just the energy. You know, if somebody said, hey, if your dream job is you can be a star actor in action movies or you can have your own show in a theater and both you're going to have great success, I think I would take a theater because there's nothing better than that energy of people. And every time I perform, my goal is to get a state innovation. So however you got to get there, that means that they had a good time. And so that feeling is so rock star. I always want to be a lead guitar player in a rock band. You know, I don't need to be the lead singer. I just thought it'd be cool just to wail out and do solos and walk out in the stage and just feel that. And so that's trying what I recreate. What's Simon Cowell like? Super cool, man. Now, we don't have a lot of interactions with the judges. Mm -hmm. And I understand why. They want to be biased. They want to be true to the performance. They have no clue what you're going to do. So even in rehearsals, it's stand-ins. It's people acting like the judges so we can time block it. Because for live TV, they got to put your act, okay, your act is four minutes and 10 seconds. Let's do it a few times. Let's average this out and hit those marks. Because if it goes to commercial and you're not done, bad. So you're so, doing it multiple times. Yeah, you have rehearsals. The day before and the, and the day of, you'll run through it. But the judges have been super cool, man, and responsive. And I think the key is, for me, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And where am I different? And where am I different, not necessarily from the other magicians, but where am I different from everyone? And I need to focus on that. And for me, the strength of what I do is the ability to interact with those four judges. That's the key. Singers don't get that opportunity. Ventriloquists, they don't get that. And I think fans love to see those people go at it with each other. And they love to see that interaction. So you try and pick material that's going to bring that out. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Do you remember the first trick that you ever learned how to do? Yeah, actually I do. It was uh, the first trick I ever saw too was Michael Groves. He was a 16-year-old magician, put a red sponge ball in my hand. And then uh-huh. he made one disappear. And then when I opened my hand, I had 
two of them. I had his and mine. And then he took me to a magic store. And I've learned now years later that the trick's called the Chicago opener. And long story short, somebody, you have a blue deck or a red deck, doesn't matter, but let's just say it's blue. Somebody picks a card and you look at it. And for now, let's just say it's the Ace of Spades. I put the card back in there. But when he fans the cards out, there's all blue cards except one red one. Oh, where'd the red one come from? And it's like a prediction and it matches the card that I picked. And he says, what was your card? And you say, it was the Ace of Spades. And he goes, oh, look, the prediction matches. But then he instantly takes the Ace of Spades and turns it face down. And now it's red. And you pick another blue card. And then that red card changes into the second selection as well. And that was the first card trick I ever learned. So was that the trick, that show that inspired you to learn magic? Oh, yeah. First time I ever saw magic as a kid. First time I ever had any exposure to it. And I thought it was awesome. And for me, magic isn't so much about you're like this godly figure and, ooh, I can read your mind and talk to the dead and I literally have magic. I could care less about that. For me, it's just cool, man. It's just fun. And it's my tool and it's what I use to connect with an audience. And some people, it's music or instruments. And for me, it just happens to be magic. So magic to me is just cool. And I hope that if I perform, people leave and their reaction is just, that was awesome. That was fun. And they feel good about it. When was the first time that you actually got up in front of people to do it, in front of an audience? I was in eighth grade and I did a talent show. I did a a routine called the Kevin James Rose and killer. And I thought I bombed. Now this is in front of the whole school, parents, everybody. And the routine is you have a little piece of paper and you ball it up and it floats all over your body. Like it's unbelievable. It's just floating everywhere. Then you unfold it and you fold it into an origami rose and then you put it in your hand and you wave your fingers and this origami rose floats up in front of you and it's just floating in front of you. And then you take a lighter and you light it on fire and there's a huge flame and it becomes real. And It's a real rose and you can give it away. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. And I saw David Copperfield do it on his 1993. Uh, well, it was a montage, but he did it on tour. So I found out who invented it and I got it. And uh, so anyway, so it's eighth grade. And so I remember that when the rose is floating and it lit and then I lit it on fire and it became real. It was just dead quiet. In my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, like they saw everything. This is awful. (laughs) But I think it was a little bit more than they were expecting. And then the place just went nuts. And I was like, oh my gosh, I nailed it. Yes. Yeah. But that was cool, man. That was really cool. So you thought you bombed, but it was really just a stunned silence that nobody could believe that an eighth grader just... Yeah, looking back, I think that was it. But let me tell you, dude, one or two seconds on stage of dead silence is a long time. So how long, take that Kevin James Rose trick... How long did it take for you to learn that? I spent all year, every day, going home and practicing it. And it was just getting comfortable with the technique of doing it and with the moves, uh, with the choreography of it, and just repping it out. It's like snapping, man. And I think magic actually kind of influenced my ability to try and perfect snapping is just that I like doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over in search of the perfect rep. Like, I like that. Both magic and my position in football kind of have a similarity there. Do you have a favorite trick, one that's been top of the line for you that you learned throughout the years? I love card stuff. I do private shows. It's awesome. And and 10 people max. uh, And there's a market for it. It's really, really cool. I love just making a huge mess on a card table and interacting with people and having it fun. And anything card related is my favorite. I was actually doing research today and I found a video of you performing a card trick for Ernie Sims. Yeah, I remember remember that. that. Yeah, I do. That was like the most mind-blowing trick that I've ever seen you do. So I'm looking forward to what you're going to do in the future with it. But speaking about the show, these acts that you've been doing right now, Are these things you've been able to do for a long time, or are you kind of trying to step your game up and take it to the next level with each step? It's both. Around the facility, I mess around and do stuff. But in the off-season, I tour around and perform. So I haven't been able to do shows in 10,000 people in arenas. And it might be I'm booked as a keynote speaker, but I do a lot of magic within that. Fortunately for me, I've been able to rep these things out. And this new thing that I'm going to do next week is new. I've never done it before on, well, I I take that back. I have done it. Not this big. So I'm taking a trick and I'm making it big. Same trick, same concept, just everything's going to be bigger and hopefully more visual. But really, I think the key is is in the performance. The key is in the interaction. The key is, you know, I I, uh, do a lecture in the magic community. I just started and I'm writing it right now. And my lecture is called, They Don't Care. They Don't Care. 
And it's based on this premise that I believe that the audience doesn't care what you're going to do because they don't know what you're going to do. They just want to escape their lives and be entertained. And then I think that when you have that attitude and you're doing a live show and it's an hour long, if you mess up here and there, they don't care because they like you and they want to see you succeed. Now, if you're live on television, you have four minutes and you mm -hmm. mess up, it's a little bit more dramatic. But I got to sit down with Garth Brooks and we were talking about stuff and somebody asked him a question and they said, hey, what song are you going to sing? And he just looked up and he goes, does it really matter? Right. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what Garth Brooks sings. Why? Because the audience loves him. Well, and he's they're talented gonna, too. I mean, he's talented. Song, he does, well, yeah. Maybe. Okay. Assuming you have the talent but, to yeah, back it up. Of course. But he doesn't care because he knows that his motivation and his love for this art and his talent, the audience is going to have fun because he's a great performer. So it doesn't matter the song. It's who's singing it. I just love that idea because some people are all about the trick. Like it's got oh, this trick. No, 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 no. If you can go on stage with a coin and get a standing ovation, you're a performer. What did it mean to you when you had the Golden Buzzer performance and your Aunt Susan and your girlfriend were in the audience? Oh, killer, man. Killer. And what's funny about that is right before I went on stage, I was in the back and I remember looking at Annalise going, I don't think I picked the right trick. Like, I don't think this is the right material. Like, this is going to bomb. Like, all right, let's just go for it. But I don't know. I, I just felt like, oh, no. You know what happened is for a split second, I started comparing myself with other acts and how big their props were, whether it was a contortionist yeah. or this or mm -hmm. that. And then I had to snap back into it and be like, dude, don't worry about them. Don't try and be them. Just be you. And either this is the right medium for you and this is the right avenue for you and your talent fits this show or it doesn't. I use this comparison. Scott Thompson's a buddy of mine and, and he's a comedian, Carrot Top. And I, I think he's hysterical. I didn't know what his real name was. When you're Scott yeah. Thompson, I'm like, who? Carrot Top. Yeah, so, okay. so Carrot Top. Donnie calls him Carrot Head, uh, but, uh, <laughs> which I think is hysterical. He's like, hey, have you talked to Carrot Head? Carrot Top, that was something that I've always kind of used as an example whatever he does, say he auditions for something, right? He doesn't really have any competition. Nobody does what he does. So it's not so much a matter of you lost the audition. It's just, we love what you do, but what you do isn't the fit for what we're looking for in this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a different perception on competition. That's the attitude I went with the show. Either, either what I do works for the show or it doesn't. And let's find out. People are going to say America's Got Talent is your big break. And obviously, in many ways, it is. But you mentioned your friendship with Garth Brooks, you know Carrot Top. What do you think was your big break to get into that stratosphere? Well, the NFL put me on a platform, that's for sure. And it put me on a different level of exposure internally and within the league, doing events, being able to perform for celebrities, being able to perform at big venues and being invited into really cool places. And for me, magic separated me. And so I became the entertainment for the VIP after party. So wherever we went, with celebrities, athletes, it didn't matter when the after party came and the VIP party came, everybody wanted to see me. So it enabled me to rep out stuff and it enabled me to kind of not get so starstruck and kind of work that out. And so anytime you get on network television, NBC, something very interesting happens. And basically what happens is that network vouched for you. And that network said, yeah, you pass everything we need for you to be on TV. So now all of a sudden buyers are like, well, if he's good enough for NBC, he's good enough for us. So now they're less hesitant to pull the trigger in booking things and bigger things because NBC gave you the stamp of approval, which is a big deal. I would actually argue that as great as your tricks have been on America's Got Talent and the stuff that we've seen around the facility here over the years, your best talent or your best trick might have been your college highlight <laughs> tape to get to UTEP. True story. Because it's not actually you doing the long snapping. Well, a few of them were. Some, yes. Most of them weren't. And uh, <laughs> so here's what happened. And look, it's my story. It is what it is. It wouldn't have worked today. But back then, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a little bit older than these generations now. We didn't have, internet was just barely coming out. We didn't have high def. You didn't have 12 cameras and lifts at practice. You didn't have all this stuff. And so you took really blurry, subpar 
footage is what every team had. And I decided to kind of take two other teammates, highlights and mine, and put them together and splice them together and make this highlight tape. And coaches are like, dude, this guy's unreal. How'd you slip through the cracks? I'm like, I know, it's unbelievable because I'm three people. <laughs> Let me tell you this. If you make a highlight tape of three people, it's going to be a pretty good highlight tape. You had to work on it because you almost had to live up to what was on that tape. Yeah, I didn't really think of that when I <laughs> mailed the tape out. So my high school coach, Bill Craven, is the first one that said, hey, throw this between your legs. And I kind of had a knack for it. And I did a little bit in high school. And then I went to junior college and I didn't do it. And I didn't really work on it. And so when I was trying to get into college, I was like, I can snap and there's a need for this. So let's just add this and we'll see what happens. And for me, where I got really fortunate is it was just that new revolution in sports where long snapping became its own position, where colleges were allocating a scholarship just for that. NFL teams were allocating a roster spot just for that. And so I got lucky. It was the right time, right place, and the right people involved that I got that opportunity to do it because I was just a little bit better or my film <laughs> was just a little bit better than everybody else. How close were you to hanging it up when the Eagles called? Because you were with Tennessee the year before. You get into November, end of November. That's pretty much the entire season. Were you almost about to go to Magic full-time at that point? or Every year I've played, I thought I was getting cut. And so after every season, I was like, all right, well, I'm probably going to get released. Even so? Yeah, I'll probably get released, so I'll just tour around and perform and see what happens. And uh, I remember right before I got signed by Tennessee, I was talking with the Broken Lizard guys who did Super Troopers and Beer Fest and mm -hmm. Club Dread. And they were talking about, hey, do you want to be in some movies? What do you want to do? And I was literally sitting down with Eric Stolansky when the phone rang. And I think it was Jay Chandrasekhar. And I was like, yeah, what's up? Hey, cool. Hey, guys, I hate to cut this meeting shy, but apparently the Titans want me to play against the Raiders tomorrow. Oh, I got to go play. <laughs> and I got to go play. You know, so that was cool. But it, yeah, I was kind of going to the entertainment business. I got a lot of friends in it. And they were like, dude, you got to do this. And then all of a sudden, April would come around and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm still on this team. I got to book a flight for the team meeting next week. <laughs> and it's been like that every year. And so every offseason I've performed and whatever happens, happens. What I love about the way you perform is you can do it at the drop of a hat. So, for example, the Democratic National Convention was here in Philadelphia recently, and the Secret Service took a tour of the facility, and they came into the locker room, and you came out, and on a whim, you do a car trick. And it's gotten over 2.1 million really? views on Facebook. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, it's wow. huge. You know, so, it's funny story about that. I'm getting off practice, and I go in the shower. And I'm in the shower for like two minutes. And then I come out in a towel soaking wet, and I look up, and there's nothing but Secret Service with AK-47s <laughs> and dogs. And I literally went, what the heck happened? I was only gone two minutes. You know, I was freaking out like, uh. And then that happened. I dried off real quick. But again, it comes back to this. They don't care what the trick is. So it's not like you have to prepare this big thing. Just do a simple trick, but just make them care about it. Make them have fun and make them laugh. When you do that impromptu and, and you make it cool and fun, then they're going to enjoy it. John, you mentioned the Broken Lizard guys. Uh, loved you in Beer Fest, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but with America's Got Talent, we've really seen your performing side. And separate from magic, do you have plans of maybe going into TV, going into acting or anything like that? Yeah, I love hosting. And ETN here gave me a great opportunity. It first started with Rob Alberino and, and you, Chris, and Joe and everybody else. And I love it. I love the hosting side, the interviewing side. And I had a, a deal with some production companies over the year. I had a talent deal with Discovery for a while. And it's just finding the right project. But I love television. And I got friends in, in the movie business. And so it's a matter of scheduling and timing. I think it would be fun. I'm one of those guys that whatever opportunity comes and it sounds fun, yeah, why not? Let's just see where it goes. I would love to do all that. John, my last question for you here is for a young fan who might be listening to this, who maybe was in your situation years ago, what's a message for someone, whether it's trying to get to magic or just trying to find their avenue, their outlet, so to speak, and to look at you and the role model that you are today, what would be your message to him or her? I think the biggest piece of advice I can have is find happiness and find true happiness within yourself and don't have it be based on money or materialistic things 
be able to come home and be proud of, of who you are as a person. It's funny. I got into magic. That's great. But magic saved me from a really bad place. And magic taught me things about myself. And then I slowly learned that life is magic. Everything around me is magic. And, and everything around me is opportunity. And the sooner I learned how to forgive people and just understand that not everybody's perfect, not everybody thinks the way I think, not everybody treats the people the same way that I do for the good or the bad. But then I, I learned that some people are going to come and go in your life. But the people that were negative influences in your life that are no longer in your life, don't let them affect your life anymore. I see a lot of people that either they get divorced or this happens or that happens and 10 years later, they're still bitter at these people that haven't been in their life for 10 years. So internally learn how to get over things and learn how to appreciate things. And I truly believe that how I view myself and how I talk to myself is the same way I view the world and is the same way I talk to the world. So simply make a decision that when you get up, you're going to be happy and you're going to enjoy the day. And you know what? Bad things are going to happen. That's part of life. But if you take the victim card, then you're going to be a victim your whole life. So live in vision, not in circumstance. Don't hate, don't blame, forgive. And take this world for what it is. And if you die happy, wherever that is in, in your life, if at the moment your time is done and you're happy, then that's a great life. John, phenomenal stuff. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. And best of luck Thanks. down the line, not just on the football field, as well as with America's Got Talent. Thanks. Can I do your sign-off? Please do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Chris McPherson, and thank you. Alex, I really loved John's message at the end. I mean, everyone has a story. Everyone has overcome some adversity in his or her life. Obviously, people have battled through varying degrees of adversity. But when you meet someone like John, he's someone you look at and you just say, if he can overcome it, if he can get through and persevere. Why can't I? Why can't anyone? What I was thinking about while we were doing this interview, there was a community event that the Eagles held. I can't remember if it was 2014 or maybe in 2015. They had a local group that really deals with children who are going through that same kind of thing. Where the Center for Grieving Children? It may have been, yeah. but it, it dealt with children who have things going on at home and, and domestic violence issues and that kind of thing. And he took them on a tour through the stadium, brought them into the locker room, performed some magic for them, of course, and really just kind of blew their minds. And then the message that he had for those kids that day, which was the same thing that he kind of taught to us, but to give it to them and to see their reaction, it's just great. It's an unthinkable situation to go through. Myself, personally, I don't know how I would, how anybody could handle something like that, but to see how he's not only gotten through it himself, but has managed to turn it around and, and spread his message to people or kids who may be going through something similar, it's really cool. Now, if you watched his Golden Buzzer performance on America's Got Talent, there were two women in the audience watching one of them was his aunt slash mom, Susan Hyman, who joined us now on the podcast and recalls what it was like when she stepped up to take over such an instrumental role in John's life. Susan, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Well, thank you. So, Susan, it was very interesting. As my co-host Alex reached out to you to set up the interview, you responded saying that you're his mom slash aunt. That's right. <laughs> Can you speak to how you've taken on that role over the years? Well, when my sister was murdered, Jonathan and his sister, Chris, since his father had committed the murder, they were didn't have a mom and dad. So I raised Christy and Jonathan, mom slash aunt. And Susan, a story I read said that you were 32 at the time. You were Correct. single. Correct. I can't fathom at all what it would be like to have something like that happen and to all of a sudden now be responsible for them. What drove you to just take John and his sister Christy and bring them into your life and make them your children? There was just no question who was going to raise the kids. I wanted my mom and dad to be grandma and grandpa. That's such a huge role. 
And even though I was the fun, spontaneous aunt, it was time for me to raise my sister's kids. And there's just no other person and no other way. I had to do that for my sister and for the kids. When we talk to John now, he's so personable, he's so outgoing, he's so great as a performer, and and if he's talking to different groups or whatever it may be. But what was he like as a kid? I know obviously he went through an incredibly tough time, but what was John like growing up? We've always referred to Jonathan, even as a little boy, as an old soul. He's extremely outgoing, he's always loved sports, and he's just an all-around good kid. And when all this happened... Is basically when he went into magic to kind of go into his own world. But John's just, like I said, he's just an old soul. Susan, you actually opened the door to magic by connecting him with a friend of yours. Yes. My friend Ken Sands was a magician and also owned one of our local magic stores. And I introduced Ken to Jonathan and he basically became a big brother to John and they would go out and he would show him tricks and he was a big mentor in John's life. When did you realize how important magic was going to be in terms of helping John get through the difficult period of his life? When he was 12, when he first was introduced to it, he actually was introduced to it. It was his coach in Little League. His older son was doing a trick, and John was fascinated by it and came home and was talking about it. And from that point on, we started buying him the videos, and my dad started making him his props. And we just realized that that was what he needed to try to understand what all had happened. It kept his mind productive, and he could kind of just be by himself. That's really interesting to hear how much support he had from the family in getting into magic, because I have to imagine if your child comes up to you and says, hey, I want to get into magic. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's a little bit different, but it sounds like everyone in the family was really on board and really just helping John with whatever it is that he wanted to do. That's exactly what we did. We just were there to support him and get him through a really hard time. When did you realize that John, I'll say Jonathan, I'm having fun with this. I'm going to poke fun at him now all the time. When did you realize that this was more than just maybe a hobby to help him ease his mind, that this was something that he was truly special at and could help others with? I think in the very beginning, just because of the excitement and every time he would perform a trick, especially his card tricks and the sleight of hand, and just see his reaction when he would complete the trick and what he got from the people that he was performing it, whether it was family, friends, or in time he actually had audiences and he was in the school talent shows and like seventh grade and eighth grade, he was in the talent shows there. And the feedback that he got from people was just amazing. It was just such a passion for him. So how often were you kind of the first test for all these tricks that he learned over the years? (laughs) Yes, I was. And I actually could not walk into his bedroom when he was practicing. So I would leave his laundry out by his bedroom door. And at one point, he put, you know, the caution tape that they have like a crime scene. He put that across the door so I wouldn't walk in. (laughs) Now, at the same time, you mentioned that he loved sports and athletics. He also has an interest in football and is looking to use that as a way to get into college and possibly play at the collegiate level. How supportive were you and the rest of of John's family in terms of helping him pursue that side of the dream? Well, for me, it's kept him busy. It was proactive. It was sports. It's a good environment. It was team building. And I would support him in anything he did as long as he was busy. So we were extremely supportive. And he didn't start football till high school. 
where a lot of his friends had started early on. He was going to be, believe it or not, Jonathan was always going to be like baseball was his thing. He was going to go to Pepperdine. He was going to be in the major leagues. And then football came along in high school. And he came from a small high school, so everybody played. And boy, once he got that contact sport, he was hooked. I'm intrigued by the description of John's bedroom. Were there just magic supplies and things all over the place? Was it basically almost like a madman's lab in terms of trying to test all these tricks out? Well, you know, he did like the floating rose and that type of thing. So, yes, there were things you could walk into. He primarily did a lot of cards, which was all the sleight of hand stuff. So we bought him a little television, a little TV that had the VCR attached to the TV. So he would sit there and just watch all of his tapes. A lot of cards, cards everywhere. Whenever I cleaned the house, it was cards like between the couch cushions, behind the doors and chairs, and cards were everywhere. So he couldn't magically make them disappear. He could make them appear. (laughs) He could make them appear, and they would disappear, but then I would find them everywhere. (laughs) I remember... I remember Susan on the Real Sports profile of John on HBO, and he took Brian Gumbel's watch without him knowing. Has he ever done that at a house party or family gathering or maybe even to you to the point where it's like, where's my watch? Where's this, that, or the other? And everyone's frantically looking around and John's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs knowing full well that he was the one responsible. Right. Yeah, that's happened. It's happened a few times. He did that, and he really got great response on that. But people were concerned if they were going to get their watches or rings or jewelry back for money. (laughs) John's been touring around in the offseason, and he's been doing magic for a while now, but things are really escalating for him now since he's been on America's Got Talent. What's it been like for you to see him kind of in the national spotlight now for something other than football and for something that's obviously a huge passion for him? What's it been like for you to see him along the, the way? It's been amazing. He's living two passions, football and now magic, and he's actually now showing the nation what his other passion is, and that's magic. And it's just been amazing and so proud to see him accomplish everything that he's done. Has John ever taken a moment, or has there ever been a certain time where John just thanked you for everything that you did for him and his sister? John thanks me all the time. Big bear hugs and kiss on the forehead and tells me he loves me all the time and just very thankful. And then in turn, I tell them that I'm so thankful to have them in my life. They're my greatest gift, as tragic as it was. How did they change your life? I know on the surface, like you said, you were the fun aunt, you were single, Mm -hmm. young at the time. How did they change your life? Well, it definitely grounded me. It was very spontaneous and would just go to Europe on a whim. And it just grounded me and it gave me a purpose. And the purpose was doing the best that I could do in raising the kids. Still to this day, I always ask my sister. I hope she's proud, and I'm sure she is. Susan, can you describe what it was like sitting in the theater? It was the Golden Buzzer show, and John was about to perform in front of Neo, including all the other celebrity judges. And he looked to you and said that you're his mother, and that's the first time that America learned, at least through the show, about his backstory. What was that moment like for you? Surreal. And I just remember just sobbing. It was just so surreal, and and I was just so touched by it. Words just can't describe it. It was just wonderful to be called mom. It was wonderful. 
right after that, then he goes into his live performance and it's obviously in front of a huge audience, which he's done before, but it's Mm -hmm. however many millions of people watching at home as well. Are you nervous at that point or are you confident that he's about to do something really great? I'm nervous. You know, like John says, it can either go really, really well or really bad. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm nervous. It's just like when he gets hit on the football field. It's the same feeling. On the football field, it's like, get up, get up. And then he's performing. It's like, please, dear Lord, please (laughs) make this trick go well. I remember watching at home. And there were a few acts before him, and the whole shtick to the show was which act would earn the golden buzzer and get the ticket to advance directly to Hollywood for the semifinals. And after John performed, what was it like when you saw the golden confetti come down and that John was selected as the one act of that group to advance to Hollywood? I screamed. I just was like, I mean, I know how good he is. But for him to get that golden buzzer, it was just amazing. Annalise was sitting with me, his girlfriend, and I just like, I think we just like were in shock. And we saw the confetti and just screamed and hugged each other. It was just like, oh my God, it was so exciting. It was just so exciting and to be there. Are you going to be there at the next live show? I am. Do you have any idea what trick he may do? Do you have any no. inside knowledge? I have no idea. I have no idea what he's going to do. I will know, get it out of him. <laughs> did you know what he was going to do for the last show that you were at? Or did he keep that a secret and just do it on his own? No, I knew. Somewhat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the next one, as of right now, at least, it's a complete I surprise. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I want to know yet. Because I do. I get very nervous. I'm just so excited for him. You're going to be nervous anyway. Yeah. It's like an added thing that you know what's coming up. So it's suspenseful and you have the nerves tied in. It, yeah, it's... I know. I'll see if I can get it out of him. <laughs> Well, Susan, we'll be cheering on John, supporting him, but we will also be looking forward to seeing you in the spotlight as well, because obviously without you, he would not have the success that he's having today. And it's an absolute honor to have you join us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. Susan Heidman, John Dornbos's mom, thank you so much once again. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. You know, Alex, when we were discussing how to approach the interview, there's really no easy way to get to the heart of the matter. Susan answered her questions bravely. I can't imagine how tough it would be like to know that your sister, you find out your sister has been murdered. Your whole life has been turned upside down because you're going to step up and become the guardian, become the mother to two children now, with John and his sister, Christy. Just an amazing woman. And it's probably a situation like Susan mentioned where it impacted and helped her life just as much as the other way around. The biggest takeaways that I had from our interview was that there was no question that as soon as it happened that she was going to step up and she was going to be the person to take them in. And that's something that's really incredible. And she was a young person at the time, a single person. And one day her life changed. But she said it's kind of a bittersweet thing because she lost a sister. But at the same time, she really gained two children in the process. It's a really remarkable story and really an inspiring interview to be able to speak to her. So once again, John performs on America's Got Talent this Tuesday, August 30th. So make sure to check him out on NBC and to vote for him to advance to the next round. And that's going to do it for us here on another edition of the Eagles Entire Podcast. Again, we greatly appreciate the comments, the ratings, the reviews, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, or right on our website, philadelphiaeagles.com or the mobile app. And we will have another episode for you next Thursday. For Alex Smith, I'm Chris McPherson. Everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great Eagles day.